All right, good morning. Please turn to the book of Luke, the first chapter of Luke. We're going to talk about Luke this morning. I'm excited about it. Uh, I remember when I was a little kid, my grandparents lived about an hour and a half away from our house and visited occasionally. And I remember uh, sitting in the living room, and my grandfather had a big uh, overstuffed recliner that was just no one else sat there. And I remember him sitting there and telling stories about uh, when he grew up and about life on the farm because he'd lived on the farm most of his life. Sitting there and listening to his stories. And I enjoyed his stories. And uh, sometimes when we'd go, I would hear stories that I've heard before. Sometimes I'd hear stories I'd never heard before. Uh, sometimes I heard stories that I thought I heard before, but they were a little different. But um, that's kind of the way I always... He, he would just talk about whatever popped up into his mind that day, right? That's kind of the way I thought about the Gospels. That um, I always thought that like the, the four Gospel writers just kind of sat down and went like, hey, remember that one time? Let me write about that. And, and just whatever kind of popped into his mind, they would, that's how they wrote the Gospel. But that's not what happened. Turn to the first chapter of Luke, and let's see what Luke says about how he wrote his gospel. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's the introduction to Luke that Luke wrote. And he wrote it as a, as a treatise to a man named Theophilus, who we know nothing about. But we also know that Luke wrote Acts. Acts is like a, Luke wrote a two-volume set, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, about the things that were fulfilled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the apostles. Acts, the full title of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. So what Luke did was he carefully uh, studied and researched and wrote an orderly account. He didn't just write whatever popped into his mind at the moment. He, and one thing we know about Luke is that he was a very accurate historian. Um, Sir William Ramsey, I think his name was William, yeah, Sir William Ramsey was an archaeologist, a Scottish archaeologist who was born, I think, around 1850. And in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was the leading uh, archaeologist of Bible lands. And so he, he verified, he went into, the, uh, into his work with the concept that Luke, most of the places and stuff in Luke were not historically accurate. But he, in 1904, wrote that he had been persuaded that Luke was a very accurate historian, and he was actually converted to Christianity because of how accurate Luke was in his title, uh, titles to officials, his locations that people before had thought maybe didn't really exist. So we know Luke, the historical part of Luke is extremely accurate. Why is that important to us? Is it important to us? And if it is, why? Because it is, because Christianity is based on real historical events. We 
Our religion is based on the fact that Jesus was really born of a virgin and that he really lived and he really died, was crucified, and that he really, truthfully, rose from the grave on the third day. If those aren't real facts, then we might as well not be here. We could have slept in this morning um, or whatever. We could be out enjoying the last day of nice weather. Um, but we're here to worship because we believe those are true facts. And so we know Luke was uh, very accurate in his writing. He didn't take any kind of artistic license. He was extremely accurate. Now, what do we know about Luke? The person Luke. We don't know a lot about him. Let me tell you about the book of Luke and Acts together. Luke and Acts together makes up 52 chapters which is about a third of the New Testament. So Luke wrote approximately a third of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote another third, and Luke and Paul were um, companions. We know that he was a very accurate historian. We know in uh, Colossians chapter 4, Paul talks about the people that are with him in verse 11. He names a few people in verse 11. He says, that's all the Jews that are with me. And then he names off a few more. And one of those is Luke, the beloved physician. So we know that Luke was a Gentile, probably a Greek, and he writes to the Greeks. Theophilus is a Greek name. I'm sure he was a Greek uh, person with a, uh, that was high in society. He wrote to him the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, so we know he's an accurate historian. We know that he was a doctor. And you can kind of see that in his writing. Mark... Um, Mark was kind of, Mark used the word immediately a lot, right? He's kind of a man of action. He's, you can kind of imagine him. Uh, he's, oh, there's a squirrel. Oh, back to the story now. Okay. Luke was not like that. Luke was very methodical and detailed. Luke is the longest gospel and the most uh, thorough, the most comprehensive. So we know he was a doctor. He was a Gentile. In Philippians 2.3, Paul calls him a fellow worker. So he wasn't just along to be Paul's physician. He was a fellow worker in the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul talks about him. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul was in prison. He was about ready to die. He was about ready to be killed, beheaded by the Romans. And he said, only Luke is still with me. So in his last final hours, Luke was the only one still with him. So we know that Luke was a very dedicated, loyal person. And that's really all we know about Luke. Uh, but that's all we need to know. Now let's talk about the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. It's a gospel, which means what? Good news. And it's a narrative. A narrative is a story. So it's written in a, as a story. Now, we believe it's very accurate. It's a true story. It's not a fairy tale. It's a true story, but it's a story. So we need to look at it like a story. You ever watching a story on TV, like maybe a mystery, and you're trying to figure out who did it, and you remember something that was said early in the program, and it, you remember that, and it, those are connected. That's the way the gospel narratives are. There are connecting points. So there are things in the beginning, themes that carry on through. So I want to just talk about a couple of themes. One theme is, and there's a lot of conflict. Like any good story, it has a lot of conflict. Uh, one theme is the 
conflict with the religious leaders, between Jesus and the religious leaders over the Sabbath. In chapter 6, Jesus is out with his disciples walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and his disciples pick some seeds, heads of grain, and they eat it. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, say to him, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, first of all, let me make it clear that was, the Old Testament does not forbid that. Uh, on top of the, what the laws were in the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the uh, scribes had come up with, I think it was like 313 additional laws. So, for instance, the Old Testament says the Sabbath is a day of rest. They had, uh, you know, it's kind of like at work, when somebody does something wrong, there's a new policy, right? So um, it's like that. They decided, somewhere along the way, they had decided walking, if you walk too much, that's like work. So they had a set distance. You can walk a mile, but not 1.1 miles. I don't know what the actual distance was, but there was a set distance. And one of the things was you couldn't harvest on the Sabbath. So the disciples were walking through the field, they picked the grain, they're accusing them of harvesting on the Sabbath. So Jesus said, hey, there's nothing wrong with what they did. And he says, the son of man, which by the way is his favorite title for himself in all the gospels, but especially in Luke, the son of man emphasizes his humanity, that he was a real human, a man just like one of us. Man that got hungry, got tired, got thirsty. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So right there he says, the Sabbath, I'm in charge of the Sabbath, not you. The very next story Luke tells is about Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath. So again, these stories are in order. Luke puts them in a logical order for a reason. And then he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Then he heals the woman, woman on the Sabbath. At the end of that story, it says the religious leaders, this is still in chapter 6, were extremely angry. They were filled with anger. And they started plotting how they could get rid of him. Because he didn't abide by their traditions. Okay, and you can see the, if you read through any of the Gospels, you'll see the controversy over the Sabbath in all of them. And it continues on. And in Jesus, in uh, Luke, two more times he healed on the Sabbath. And each time you could see the religious leaders got madder and madder. And the last time, they began to plot to kill him. The first time, they just were trying to get rid of him, it says. Then they began to plot to kill him. Okay, another theme that runs all the way through there is the theme of authority. So if you read through the Gospels, look at the word authority. Notice the word authority and what the Bible says about it. Uh, In 432, when Jesus started to preach, that's when he first started preaching. It says the people marveled because his teaching had authority. They were amazed at his authority. Uh, Most of the rabbis in the first century taught like this. Uh, If I would be up here teaching, I would say, um, this is what I believe because Rabbi Brady teaches that we should do this. And, And Rabbi John teaches that we should do this. So they never said anything on their own. Jesus said, hey, I'm telling you, this is the way things is. His teaching had authority. In chapter 4, verse 36, he cast out demons from a man. And the people marveled again. And they said, who is this man that has authority even over demons? 
Then as you go through, you see the, uh, oh, in chapter 5, he's teaching, and some people bring a man to him who's crippled, and he says, um, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, they didn't even say it out loud, but they thought, this man is a blasphemer. And Jesus said, why do you think in your hearts that I'm a blasphemer? He knew their thoughts. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can, we can't really see that, right? But then he said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Take up your mat, walk, and go home. The guy picked up his mat and went home. So he had authority to forgive sins. Later, as he was casting out demons, the, the um, religious leaders accused him of casting out demons by the authority of Satan. So that's another thing we see in there. Um, and the last time Luke mentions authority in his gospel, is very interesting, chapter 22, verse 53, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest Jesus, he tells them, hey, I could escape if I want, but this is your hour and the authority of darkness or the power of darkness. So he knew this was time. He yielded himself, obviously, uh, willingly. They did not overtake him. The power of darkness, the authority of darkness could not overtake him without his authority. Another theme in Luke is humility. And he, he starts off with talking about humility in chapter 1 where Mary gives her, it's her prayer. When she finds out that she's gonna have a baby, she's a virgin, she's pregnant, and she's praising God. And she said, you have lifted up a woman of humble estate. Twice she talks about how her circumstances are humble. She's just a humble girl and the Lord has lifted her up. And twice Luke records Jesus as saying, uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So humility is a theme again all through Luke. And who would be the ultimate example of humility? Jesus, of course. The Son of God who came to earth, humbled himself, became a man, and humbled himself, Philippians 2 tells us, even unto death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. So that's a theme Another theme in Luke is repentance. Repentance. Luke uses the words repent and repentance twice as many times as Matthew and three times as many times as Mark. So he, repentance is important in Luke. It's a key theme. So what I want to do is look at a few passages with you here, and we're going to look at the idea of humility and repentance together in the book of Luke. And we're going to look only at material that is found in Luke and none of the other Gospels. I think I forgot to mention about half of Luke is original. It's not in any of the other Gospels. So if you would, look at Luke chapter 3. We'll start with verse 1. No, I'm sorry. Luke, let's go to 13. No wonder I couldn't find what I was looking for. Luke 13. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So there was a time when there were some some Jews worshiping in the temple, doing, uh, offering sacrifices, and Pilate and his soldiers had come in and killed them and mingled their blood 
with the blood of the sacrifices. And they're, they're telling Jesus his story. And he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He's addressing the idea that was prevalent, and it's prevalent in our society today, and it has been, I guess, throughout humanity, because it's what the whole book of Job is about, that if you suffer, it's because of sin. It's because God is punishing you. So Jesus said, do you think they were murdered by Pilate because they were worse sinners than you? Look at verse 3. No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So don't think you're better than them. All right? We all, we all are sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. And unless we repent, we're going to perish. And then he goes on, the next couple of verses, they talk, he talks about a tower that fell in Siloam and killed 18 people. And he says, do you think they were worse than you? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's dealing with the idea, hey, we shouldn't compare ourselves to other people and make ourselves better than them or think we're better than them because we all need to repent. We're all guilty before God, and if we don't repent, we're going to perish. Turn to chapter 15 then. Jesus talks more about repentance in chapter 15. And humility, too. Chapter 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So again, they're comparing themselves to other people. They're not showing humility. They're proud. Hey, we're better than these sinners. And what's up with this Jesus? He welcomes these sinners and eats with them. So Jesus says, it, told them, it says Jesus told them a parable. He told them about a guy that had 99 sheep and one of them was lost. And he left the 99 and went out and got the one, found the one. And when he found the one, he came back and said to all his friends, Rejoice with me, for my sheep that was lost is found. And Jesus says, Likewise, there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then he goes on to tell a story about a woman who had 10 coins and lost one of the coins. And she swept her whole house and cleaned everything till she found the coin. And then she went and told her friends, come and rejoice with me. The coin that was lost, I found it. And Jesus said, likewise, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. So you see the, the Pharisees, they're proud. They're, they don't want to be like the sinners. But Jesus said, it's about sinners and about sinners repenting. Then he goes on to tell another story, the rest of chapter 15 there, which is a very familiar story. We're not going to go through the whole thing. The story of the prodigal son, or some people call it the, the tale of two sons, or it could be called the tale of the loving father, because it's really about the father and his love. But the prodigal son, the first son, takes his inheritance and goes away to a far land. And when he's in the far land, he has lots of friends until his money runs out. Then he's alone, he has no friends, he has nothing to eat. And then in, in verse 17, it says he came to his senses. He came to his senses and said, hey, even the servants in my father's household have plenty of food to eat. I'm going to go back home 
I'm going to go back home and say to my father, not I deserve to be your son, not take care of me because I deserve it, but just let me be a hired hand in your household. And he's talking about not even a, not even a, a permanent servant, but the, the word he uses would be like a day laborer. Just let me come on the days that you have work and work and have something to eat. And so he turns, which is a, a picture of repentance. So in this story, Jesus doesn't use the word repentance, but he shows a picture of it. He repents and he goes back to the father and the father runs and grabs him. He sees him when he's far off and he runs and grabs him and hugs him and kisses him and puts the ring on his finger and the, and the robe and kills the fatted calf and has a big party. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of humility when you come to the end of yourself and repentance when you realize I, I, need, I cannot help myself. I don't deserve help. I'm going to turn to God and ask for help. And he, like our, our Heavenly Father, like the Father in that story, will run to us and grab us and hug us and kiss us and have a party for us. Then, let's go on. In chapter 18, Jesus tells another story about humility and repentance. Chapter 18, starting with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Do you know anyone like that? I'm sure we all do. The question is, are you like that? Am I like that? Confident in my own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. So there were some of these people sitting around like that. Uh, you know, they were the ones who didn't like him spending time with the sinners. They were the ones who kept all the religious rules. And let me say this. Um, the word Pharisee has a bad connotation to us today. When we hear the word Pharisee, we think of it as, as basically a synonym with the word hypocrite. But in Jesus' day, the word Pharisee was, had a good connotation. The Pharisees were the really religious people. They were the ones who gave the most money to the church. If they got, um, if somebody gave them 10 coffee beans, they would tithe one. They would, or if you gave them a sack, they would count through them all and get 10% and tithe. And they were very strict in keeping the religious rules. They were very religious. They gave to the poor. They prayed every day. They were upstanding pillars in the community. So the word Pharisee, uh, had a good connotation. It was the people, they were the people that the common people looked up to. And then in this story, we're getting ready to read, there's a publican or a tax collector. They were like the lowest of the low. If you had a relative who was a tax collector, you would not tell people about it. You'd be ashamed. Actually, they had, in those, all those laws they had, uh, they had a law that you didn't have to keep a promise to a murderer, a thief, or a tax collector. So we have someone who's like highly esteemed in the community and someone who is hated in the community. And most of them were, uh, the reason they were hated was because they were collaborators. You ever watched an old World War II movie where um, 
you know, that you got the people in Europe and the Nazis have taken over and they have the underground going, but there's a collaborator, someone who collaborates with the Nazis, turns them in. Don't you just hate those people? When you see them in the movie, you just hate them. Now, that's the way these tax collectors were. They collaborated with Rome. So they would, they would collect the taxes and, you know, uh, if they were supposed to collect $50, they might collect 100 and keep 50 for themselves. So they were extremely hated. So let's look at the story that Jesus told here. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, or it could be translated, prayed to himself. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase that, Jesus. God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twi twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So you notice what this guy did. First of all, he compared himself to a tax collector. Uh, if you, if you want to feel good about yourself, you pick the lowest, most despised person in our society just compare yourself to them. You know, I'm better than, I, 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 even the tax collector could have done this. Well, at least I'm not a murderer. You know, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a bank robber. So he just compares himself to other people. I'm so much better than them. You know, I'm not greedy. I give tithes. And then he talks about just the good things he does, right? You think this man ever sins? You think he ever yelled at his wife? I'm guessing he did. If he had a wife, <clears throat> and gave her, yelled at his kids. I'm sure he did. So he he's not a perfect man, but he's he he's um, trusting in his own righteousness. He's confident in his own righteousness, and he's looking down on everybody else. So he he prays this prayer about himself, and then Jesus goes on, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Now remember. They're in the temple. It says the story, they went to the temple to pray. So imagine the temple, it's not like this. It's not like church. The temple has a building in the middle and there's courtyards all around it. And in the front of the building is a courtyard uh, with an altar in it. So they would have been out in this courtyard praying where the sacrifices were taking place. And it could be that as they were praying, there were sacrifices taking place right then. And possibly, when the tax collector was praying, his sacrifice was being offered. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. That's a little bit of speculation. But at the very least, they would have been there in that courtyard with the altar right in front of them, the blood-stained altar where the sacrifices were made. And so here's what the, here's what the tax collector says. He, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that word mercy is not the normal word for mercy. It's a word that deals with God's wrath being satisfied by a sacrifice. So he looks at the altar, possibly his lamb being sacrificed right then, and says, God, have mercy on me. May your wrath be satisfied by the uh, sacrifice. Have mercy on me. I'm not better than other people. 
he just throws himself on God's mercy. And again, that's a picture of salvation. That's the only way to come to Christ. You can't come to Christ with your own righteousness. If you're satisfied with your own righteousness, then you don't need Christ, right? Jesus said that. Uh, not, this, not the well who need a physician, but the sick. And he also said the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. All right, one more story that's found only in Luke in chapter 23, and it takes place during the crucifixion. In verse 32, it says, two, two other men, both criminals, and Luke uses a word that just means like bad guys. It's not specific. Matthew says they were insurrectionists, but Luke just says they're eh, criminals, kind of run-of-the-mill bad people. So uh, in case we're comparing ourselves to them, they're just kind of average bad guys. Two criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Okay, and of course that, that's not the part that's only in Luke. The crucifixion is in all four Gospels. Matthew talks about the two criminals, and he says they are both mocking Jesus. They're both railing on him. They're both telling him, hey, you should save yourself. Luke goes on to talk about one of them who doesn't do that. And whenever you read about the crucifixion, it's, there's so much irony there. It always amazes me. The people are yelling at Jesus, hey, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. You see the irony in that statement? He can't save himself and save others. He's willingly choosing not to save himself. It's not that he can't. He chooses not to so that he can save others. The, the Pharisees are trying to get the, through the whole process, they're trying to get the crucifixion done quickly because the next day is the Sabbath where they're going to sacrifice or where they're going to celebrate the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover, when they were in Egypt, and they had the ten plagues. The tenth plague was... God sent his angel to kill the firstborn in every house, every household. He sent his wrath. I'm, because of sin, I'm going to kill the firstborn in every household, the wrath of God. But he told the, the Israelites, hey, if you, put, if you sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts door of your house, the lamb, the, the angel of death, will pass over your house. That's why it's called the Passover. So the Passover, the Jews celebrate it as uh, deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Pharaoh. But what it really pictures is deliverance from God's wrath. So the Jews are in a hurry to celebrate the Passover. And to do it, they kill the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. The, the irony there is just amazing. So you have all these people here who don't understand what's going on. The religious leaders, they don't know that Jesus, they don't understand that Jesus is sacrificing himself for them. The crowd, they're hurling insults at him. They don't understand what's going on. The apostles don't even understand what's going on. The disciples, they all ran away except John, right? And uh, Luke tells us in the end of chapter 24 that when Jesus came back after the resurrection, that he opened their eyes and then they finally understood. They didn't understand what was going on. The Romans didn't understand what was going on. They just thought they were killing a criminal. 
All the people in the scene, no one knows what's going on, but suddenly the light dawns upon one man. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Remember, Luke, Matthew told us that originally both of them did. One of them hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he, as he's being crucified, he's mocking Jesus too. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, or then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So in the midst of all this confusion and misunderstanding, one man suddenly gets it. What happened? What changed him? What made the difference? The Holy Spirit opened his eyes. It's a divine miracle. He was saved. He repents. He sees himself as he truly is. He says, I'm a sinner. I deserve this. He said to the other criminal, you're a sinner. You deserve it. He sees Jesus for who he truly is. The Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And he asked him, hey, remember me when you come into my kingdom. Do you see the faith of that? They're dying. They're on the cross dying. Jesus is dying. He's not coming down from the cross. And the, the thief says to him, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Even though he saw that he was dying and Jesus was dying, he saw himself as a wicked sinner dying, getting what he deserved, and Jesus as a son of God. It's so much like what the tax collector said, be merciful to me, the sinner. Only this thief sees the sacrifice right in front of him, the sacrifice of the son of God who died for us, who died for our sins. He's looking right at it, the real sacrifice, the one that the others foreshadowed. And he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those are three pictures Three stories of people who came to salvation by repentance. And that's a picture for all of us, how we all come to salvation. We must see ourselves as we are. We must humble ourselves. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And we just need to turn to Jesus and repent and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. That's how we're saved. There's no other way to be saved. Luke tells us in Acts, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But for us who are already saved, that's also a process. You know, sometimes we get on our high horse. We compare ourselves to other people. And we think we're better than them. We think we deserve better than them. But when we do that, we need to repent. We need to turn our eyes to Jesus and look at him, not even look up and just say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you that you show us the way of salvation. And Lord, your grace truly, truly is amazing. We do not deserve 
your grace, your love, your salvation. Lord, thank you for uh, providing it for us. And I pray that we would continue to walk in humility and in repentance. And when we find ourselves in those proud moments, that you would humble us, that we would humble ourselves and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never done that, I pray that you would uh, enlighten their heart to the gospel now and that they would be brought to the place of repentance and trust in your son, Jesus. In his name I ask it. Amen.